Racism harms everyone, especially young people. We often talk about the effects of racism on black, brown, Asian, and indigenous communities. But we tend to ignore how racism and policies like segregation often cause white people to vote against themselves, their kids, and their own well-being. On today's show, why integrated schools and communities should be a top priority for all of us. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase from Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It's been almost 70 years since the Brown decision, which we've discussed at length on the show. Yet we're seeing that segregation is actually on the rise. More students are attending segregated schools by race and by income. Two leading educators and scholars with Southern roots, and I'll say proud UCLA Bruin roots, are trying to change these patterns and shed light on the benefits of integration. Our first guest today is Dr. Jen Askew, professor at North Carolina State University. My name is Jen Askew, and I am an assistant professor of educational leadership and policy at North Carolina State University. Um, My research focuses on K-12 school integration. Dr. Erica Frankenberg, professor at Penn State University, is also a leading scholar on how integration impacts schooling. And like Jen, I had no idea how Erica's childhood in Mobile, Alabama, shaped the way she thinks about the world and education. Hi, I'm Erica Frankenberg. I'm a professor of education and demography, also an affiliate law faculty member at Penn State University, where I direct the Center for Education and Civil Rights. And similar to Jen, I focus my research and work with uh, educators and communities around school integration, racial inequality, and how school and other metropolitan policies um, can either exacerbate or inhibit segregation. How did your upbringing shape your interests in your work today as a scholar? I think the questions that I continue to pursue as a scholar came directly from my upbringing. I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, uh, which is the largest school district in Alabama. And the high school I went to was one of the first in the state of Alabama to be desegregated in 1963 over the fierce objections of then-Governor George Wallace, who had 200 state troopers to try to prevent the integration of my high school by two Black students. That was obviously before my time. And in fact, my senior year of high school, uh, the school district was released from court order, its desegregation order. And I knew from my experiences, I was on a countywide student um, education council, I knew that the schools were very unequal. I knew that a very close by school to my high school, which was almost entirely black, had very few of the college prep opportunities, not as many extracurricular activities, things like that, that, 
you know, made a huge difference in my life as a high schooler and, and opened the doors to great higher educational opportunities that they weren't available. And so I didn't understand how that could be fair and how a federal court judge could say, you know, that was all that could be done. Mm -hmm. And so those were questions that motivated me as I went into college. I designed actually a major in education policy, and I wrote a thesis on school desegregation in the district I grew up in and and actually learned a lot of that history when I was researching it in college instead of having grown up. So that was a really pivotal experience for me growing up. Where did you go to college, Erica? I went to Dartmouth College, so... I joke that I had to go almost to Canada to learn more about my school's history. Why do you joke about that? I think I know why, why you're saying that, but tell me more. Uh, it's, it's so far away. And, and I'll say um, my parents weren't from Alabama. They actually had grown up in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, I didn't have the knowledge of the history of my community the way others did growing up. Mm. It's certainly was an era that I think, because it was very hard, um, there were, for example, reprisals against teachers to try to get training if they wanted to on how to better teach for integration. I went to a magnet middle school, which was actually an incredibly integrated experience. Hmm. And I, I learned it was named for a superintendent in the 1960s who wrote memos about how to limit compliance with integration. And mm-hmm. that, that school is still named for him today. Mm-hmm. So I think there was some effort to comply with desegregation. And yet there are also a lot of reminders of um, that even some of the leaders, especially some of the leaders, were very complex people who maybe could have made different choices that would have facilitated greater and more successful integration. So it wasn't fully talked about um, mm-hmm. in in ways that, you know, I had to go into archives and understand some of the history, for example. And the other mm-hmm. thing I think I didn't connect structurally at the time was the way in which racial integration shapes so many of the other decisions. So my high school was also unair-conditioned, which is pretty brutal in Southern Alabama yep. um, because they didn't raise taxes at the local level for 40 years after integration because people in the city would vote for the tax increases, but the county vote, which tended to be white landowners, it was routinely voted down. And so, you know, the very palpable reasons that I was sweltering in school, I didn't fully understand how that related to the racial history until until much later. Thank you for sharing that, that Erica. I have more questions for you, but we're, we're going to shift over to Jen. So, Dr. Askew, how did your upbringing shape your interests? I grew up in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where both my parents were affiliated with the university. And I had access to a lot of educational opportunities, and I loved school. I had a great experience, so much so that I would go home and play school with my sister and be the teacher. Hmm. And I wanted to be a teacher. So after going to undergrad at UNC Chapel Hill, I became an elementary school teacher. I taught in East Palo Alto, California, and Mm -hmm. in Charlotte, North Carolina. And while both of the districts I taught in were pretty different, the schools in each of those were highly segregated, intensely segregated, and probably hyper-segregated in one of the cases. So while I was teaching, I became more aware of 
inequities and the unequal access that the students had to the educational opportunities that I had growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really, while I loved teaching, I absolutely loved the kids and their families and the communities. I became Mm -hmm. frustrated with what I wasn't able to offer within the classroom. And that really led me to become interested in exploring school desegregation and integration and what sort of policies could facilitate greater integration. What were the common characteristics? What were the differences of Charlotte and East Palo Alto? When I was in East Palo Alto, the majority of my students were Latino. Most of them were multilingual learners. Many were low income. And we were in a school district on the other side of the highway from Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. So the highway was really a powerful dividing line between school districts there. In North Carolina, many of the school districts are countywide, and I was teaching in Charlotte-Mecklenburg, which is one of the largest districts in the state. The school where I taught was in Uptown, um, Mm -hmm. and it's the school where the women and children's homeless shelter, the Salvation Army, those students were districted to attend our school. And so it was Mm -hmm. very low income. Many of the students were homeless, and it was predominantly Black school. Mm-hmm. And so while the demographic characteristics were very different, they were both intensely segregated. And I'll mention, too, in Charlotte, because of the countywide nature, a lot of the segregation we could see within the school district. So my school, located in Uptown, was very different than other schools throughout the district. And how did you and Dr. Frankenberg start working together? I was introduced to Dr. Frankenberg um, probably my first week when I was at UCLA. Mm. I went there to work with uh, Dr. Gary Orfield and Dr. Patricia Gandra Mm -hmm. and the Civil Rights Project. And I had the opportunity to be a research assistant and help Erica with a book on suburban desegregation that she was working on at the time. Wow. And here, here you are today. How, how many years later? Almost. Over 20. a decade. <laughs> over a decade. Okay. Oh, yes. Over a decade. Scratch that. <laughs> that was incorrect. I'm thinking about when I finished my master's. Yes. Yeah. 12 years. It's been 12 years. It always amazes me what a small world it is of people interested in similar issues. In our interview... Jen, Erica, and I realized we all have ties to the Civil Rights Project, both at Harvard and now at UCLA. One of the things that I have really appreciated about working with the Civil Rights Project is the opportunity to work with other researchers and scholars and lawyers who are committed to to racial integration. And there have been a number of us who, because of our experiences growing up in the South, have gone to graduate school trying to think about how to use research and other tools to affect the the conditions we've seen. And so um, mm-hmm. I remember when Jen was first starting grad school, Gary wrote to me and he's like, I have another amazing Southern graduate student and um, he would refer to us as the Brits, girls raised in the South. <laughs> Women raised in the South. Um, but I do, I do think that, you know, we both have different stories, but the similarity of being white Southerners and understanding the history of the region, 
perhaps having some experiences with integration, but seeing that it could be more widespread has been sort of a common theme linking a number of us who have been associated with the project. Absolutely. I was worked with the Civil Rights Project when it was at Harvard for a brief second when I was a grad student in Santa Barbara, Professor Orfield. Anyways, it, it's a small world of people. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about integration. Erica, what does that mean for listeners when, when they hear this term? Yes, I, I appreciate the opportunity to think about what the term means because I think it's been used in a lot of different ways to mean different things. Uh, so when I talk about integration, certainly it means racially, often economically, and maybe linguistically diverse schools, but it also means that there are efforts that are being undertaken to also ensure um, that there's equal status within the school, mm-hmm. that the faculty and the curriculum is reflective of uh, a multiracial perspectives and histories, that classrooms are diverse. And so I think historically, we've spent a lot of time focusing on how to accomplish desegregation. Mm. And, and maybe in part because it's harder to measure or the the effort it's taken to desegregate has been so hard that we haven't fully um, been able to realize integration. And I think that matters because Professor Bill Hawley, who you know had a legendary career in this area and in fact helped to design the school or helped to try to help design a desegregation plan in, in Mobile. So it was really exciting to get to know him later as a as a professor, um, talked about how desegregation or integration really only starts once you walk inside the door. And mm. so often it's the effort to get people to walk inside the door is so much that we can't always focus enough on the stuff that happens inside the school. But of course, that's why there's been so much of a policy effort because what happens inside the school can really matter for changing children's um, experiences, academic and social, in ways that benefit them and their communities then and later in life as adults. Mm. So it sounds like you're saying, Erica, the the bar has been so low, not defining integration, but you know, how how do we get get students to the space, more integrated conditions that we often forget that that's just the starting point. Is that is that what you're saying? I don't know that we fully forget. I think building and maintaining change, particularly in the face, you know, in this case of white supremacy, can be really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, for example, in the 1968 Green decision from the Supreme Court that invalidated a school district's choice plan that was perpetuating segregation, the Supreme Court outlined six factors to consider to understand whether um, the vestiges of segregation had been fully remedied. So one was student assignment, which which is what we typically think about. So we don't have white schools or black schools or Latinx schools. We just have racially diverse schools. One is having uh, racially diverse faculties. One is having a racially diverse staff. One is having equitable transportation. So, you know, black kids aren't on buses for much longer than white kids, for example. And I say black predominantly because most of the legal cases in this area have been focused on desegregating black children. Mm-hmm. Buses, extracurriculars, and I always forget one. 
which one am I forgetting, Jen? Facilities. Yes. Thank you. Ah, and and then in yeah. subsequent years, courts have also looked at access to educational opportunities. So access to advanced curriculum, looked at discipline, graduation, things like that. Thank you. Thanks for clarifying, Erica. And going back to Jen. So Jen, you and Erica in the chapter, and folks, you're going to want to read the chapter after hearing this podcast, trust me. You talk about the evidence base for integrated schools and communities in that the evidence base more particularly around the benefits, benefits, both social and academic. Could you speak more to some of the themes you and Erica talk about, Jen? Sure. So we have decades of social science research demonstrating the benefits of integrated schools and harms associated with segregated schools. So in terms of integrated schools, Students who attend integrated schools tend to achieve at higher levels, um, have higher graduation rates and lower dropout rates. And then there are also a host of non-academic benefits. Integrated schools are linked to a reduction in prejudice and stereotypes, increased friendships across racial groups, improve critical thinking, improve communication skills. They help students develop cultural competency, which is really important now and are increasingly diverse. Mm-hmm world. And then in the long term, students who have attended integrated schools tend to live and work in more diverse integrated environments. They have better economic outcomes, higher status and better paying jobs, better health outcomes, and they also tend to be more civically engaged. On the other hand, segregated schools are associated with lower levels of academic achievement higher rates of teacher turnover, higher rates of student mobility, unequal access to facilities and uh, less advanced course offerings and those sorts of things. And then in terms of communities, research also demonstrates that Black and Latino residents who live in integrated communities um, have greater educational attainment They have higher incomes and lower poverty rates, lower unemployment rates, and a longer life expectancy than their counterparts who live in segregated neighborhoods. After the break, we'll come back to discuss the many benefits of integration as fuel for a new kind of dialogue our country needs around race. Schools and communities are very interrelated, and schools can do a lot, but they can't do it all on their own. And so when we're thinking about addressing segregation, we need to focus on addressing it through both schools and communities. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, maybe a parent, maybe you make policy at the state level, or Maybe you just want to learn more about this topic so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. Please email me at joe at ourchildrencantwait.com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait podcast is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please stop and do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 
better health, better jobs, greater civic engagement, and education outcomes are just a few of the benefits of integrated schools and communities. We know the opposite happens when communities are hyper-segregated. And the reality is, a majority of our schools are still hyper-segregated. So I asked Erica and Jen, why is there so little focus on integrating our schools? Oh, the million-dollar million question. question. Yes. I know. <laughs> You know, we had the Brown decision in 1954 that said that segregated schools were inherently unequal. And it drew on part of the research that Jen just mentioned about the harms of segregation, predominantly for Black students, because of the way in which society was allocating resources, uh, and resources sort of broadly construed. There was actually social science evidence submitted to the district court and the Topeka, Kansas case mm -hmm. about the harms of segregation for white students, that mm. they had sort of unfounded uh, feelings of superiority. There is, as Jen said, a lot of evidence about how um, white students are harmed by segregation, but we haven't, it, it's not sort of in our widespread understanding about why we're doing desegregation. I think mm -hmm. desegregation got seen as something we're doing to improve the opportunities for Black students and then for Latinx students two decades later when it was recognized by the Supreme Court. And I think that, you know, that framing as sort of a, has been very paternalistic. And while to say, obviously, we must make sure that the constitutional rights of all children are not violated in schools, there are educational benefits aside from that mm -hmm. that just make a good educational policy and, and good, you know, social policy writ large, right? It's good for communities as well. And that hasn't that narrative hasn't been as widely influential, mm. in part because some of that research that has been developed has come later. But to also then think sort of as a sort of bird's eye view about this question. So we didn't have much of an impact of the Brown decision for the first decade after Brown. There was a lot of intransigence. <laughs> the Supreme Court certainly, or advocates maybe even didn't fully realize the extent to which there would be such opposition. But opposition to desegregation became a very popular thing for Southern politicians. And, who, and of course, white voters were mostly the voters because we didn't yet have the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed, and then it had Title VI that said that you could cut off funds for any institution, organizations not receive, that are receiving federal funds if they're not in compliance with discrimination, which included desegregation orders. And then a year later, we passed the Elementary and Secondary Education Act, which Mm -hmm. um, dramatically expanded uh, funding for schools serving low-income students. And where do we have the most low-income students? In the South, um, where you had historically had less funding for education. And so that helped to really propel integration along with the federal circuit courts and then eventually the Supreme Court. And so you did have 
both policy and judicial action, executive enforcement from the Office of Health, Education, and Welfare in the late mm-hmm. 1960s. And we saw a, really a significant increase in school desegregation. And the South went from almost complete segregation to being the most in- integrated region of the country, a status that it has roughly held. And I think it's important in the face of sort of certainly a lack of robust federal focus on this in the subsequent decades. The last new policy was the Magnet Schools Assistance Program in, in the 1980s, aside from a few things here and there, was that when they did focus on it, there was tremendous change. And I think that's one of the things that I um, like to remind people in thinking about, well, it seems bleak, you know, if we focus on it, and here I would also include local and state um, levels of government as well, working together, I think we could once again bring about change. And I will say there was some federal efforts, um, particularly in the latter half of the Obama administration, to try to support a focus on integration. Most of it was voluntary in nature. Some of that got overturned when um, Betsy DeVos became U.S. Secretary of Education. So I think there have been some fits and starts. There have certainly been some, I think, inspiring local efforts pushed in part by student activists who are saying, we want this full, robust integration that sort of is reminiscent of what the Green decision said. And it's just... Without thinking about, and this is an argument we make in the chapter, without thinking about schools and communities together, it's going to be hard to sustain any progress we make. Yep. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Jan, what what would you like to add? Erica said it so well. I think the the main thing that came to mind was just very recent efforts with an attempt, you know, as Erica said, in the Obama administration to provide a grant program that would support districts in planning and implementing desegregation efforts. And while that um, never was actually implemented, you know, the idea is reintroduced every through uh, the Strength and Diversity Act every Congress. And so that's something that we could um, focus on moving forward at the federal level. Can I just add one other thing, Joe? Mm-hmm. There's a Strength and um, Diversity proposals that have continued to be implemented. There have been some magnet school legislation that Senator Murphy has proposed to sort of expand magnet schools as magnet schools as a choice-based strategy to achieve integration. Representative Bobby Scott and others have also tried to think about the way in which we might expand federal tools to sort of address the way racial discrimination is adapting in today's climate that's not as overt as it once was. Mm. Um, And so he has introduced legislation called, uh, I'm not going to remember what it stands for, EIEA, which would sort of um, enhance the way of looking at impact and not just solely basing it on um, whether it's overt racial intent that's described. You know, so there are a number of ways in which there are folks in the federal government trying to think about expanding the tools we have. I think, too, that we have seen, particularly in the last decade, some efforts um, both from the Department of Justice and also from nonprofit groups like the Legal Defense Fund to Mm -hmm. try to use existing desegregation orders to sort of 
update and enhance what's going on to set districts on sustainable paths to desegregation, even once those are ended. And I think Mm -hmm. that's also, you know, worth focusing on that there's a lot of effort that is still being done in the absence of a broader, more concerted federal effort, for example. I think also at the state level, there was there's an opportunity with the Every Student Succeeds Act. In the accountability model for the Every Student Succeeds Act, there's a fifth indicator that states could decide what they wanted to use for that indicator, um, but it needed to measure s- school quality and student success. And desegregation is one of the things states could have included in their state plans to meet the requirements of ESSA. And so that's an opportunity where states could, you know, use a federal policy to try to support desegregation efforts at the state level. And while plans really didn't include that separately, there have been some states that have introduced bills, not sure they have been passed, but for example, in Massachusetts, they introduced a bill to try to collect data on school segregation. Mm -hmm. North Carolina introduced a similar bill as well. And part of those two the North Carolina bill was sharing information about levels of school segregation on school report cards so that that information is publicly available to parents and the rest of communities, as well as tracking what Erica was discussing before, what's going on inside of schools in terms of access to advanced coursework, gifted and talented programs, things like that. And actually, Jen, you know, ESSA did sort of enhance the civil rights data collection as a really important way for us to, again, see what's going on inside of schools. That became a universal, um, instead of just a sample in 2009-10, there are some ongoing efforts to try to make it more user-friendly so it could both enhance research efforts, but also could be used by communities to try to advocate for more equity and civil rights protections in their schools. And so I do think there are are also ways of trying to use existing tools to sort of update for where we are in the 21st century. And I I do think that's important to to note too. It sounds like there has to be this, a strong state appetite though, to draw connections to the benefits of integration and its connection to student learning uh, in order for these opportunities, these frankly policy opportunities and ground movement um, opportunities to to take shape. Is that right? Well, you know, Joe, we don't have a federal right to education in the Constitution. So Mm -hmm. all these efforts that we've been talking about have been uh, either relying on the 14th Amendment or some of the um, legislation like the Civil Rights Act and a couple of other laws. So certainly there could be a lot of space at the state level to try to take this up. um, And -hmm. it could be either uh, as part of ESSA. Mm -hmm. It could be as part of the way in which they think about the enforcement of their state education clauses. And so Connecticut is sort of the the best example of that being used to have a finding of uh, racial segregation. And there's been a decades-long interdistrict desegregation effort to remedy the the violation of the state constitution. There's a ongoing litigation right now in New Jersey, which we're mm-hmm. waiting for the outcome of that. Minnesota's another place. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there could be a way of also potentially at the state level thinking about how this ties into some of the ed 
funding reform efforts. Here mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, we just had a decision last month saying that the, the state funding system is unconstitutional. We have 500 school districts here. So if you want to think about how to reduce unequal funding of schools, reducing the number of units that are being funded and locally raising their own funding, you know, clearly it would be very politically challenging, but you could think about more regional ways of operating schools and thereby funding schools. And so there could be these different kind of levers mm. that that may be worth exploring. I think in addition to state efforts, um, Erica just mentioned regional. So local and regional efforts are really important too. And she's done a lot of work on voluntary efforts of school districts. And because because we maybe haven't seen as much policy or guidance from the federal government as we were discussing earlier, it's really important that action happens at the local and regional level. And we know that the majority of segregation occurs between school districts. And so that's why a regional approach that allows students to move across school district lines is really important as well. So it sounds like the the rules of the game, as they've been written historically, have to be rethought and kind of creatively, and, and I'm, I'm hearing you say that at the local regional level, there's a lot, a lot we can do that we haven't done or folks have done it, but without a whole lot of support. Is that true? You know, I think we have, what, thirteen to 15,000 school districts, and about half of those only have one school at each level, but that means the other half have multiple schools at each level. And so mm. how can we help them, from a research perspective, understand both why they should take these efforts, but also what would be effective. We ask a lot of the school board members we elect who often don't have very much training and are doing this oftentimes on a volunteer basis. Mm -hmm. These are complex issues. And I think, you know, to the extent to which we can try to support them in making decisions, which is what voluntary integration requires, that will um, not worsen segregation first and then um, hopefully improve it. You know, that's a lot of support that I think they need. You know, state school board associations could help support this, for example. I think there's just a lot of infrastructure that needs to help people make decisions that would further integration. And then I think the other way in which we think about sort of all the different policy fragmentation here is we've spoken a number of times about the connection with housing and oftentimes even though we know housing and school integration efforts are deeply linked most of us who are in schools of education we don't necessarily have deep connections to housing our training doesn't really include that um, probably vice versa school district officials may not have a ton of time to build those connections and and again working cross sector could be a really important way of doing this and so The Biden administration has this new affirmatively furthering fair housing rule that they've proposed that would communities would need to develop plans for furthering fair housing. And part of that could be um, also thinking about access to educational opportunities. And so that could be another way that this could try to be advanced at a local and regional level that could be in partnership and wouldn't even be necessarily solely in the domain of education policy, but could be cross-sector or really a housing policy. So are the majority of the students in our schools are students of color, right? So integration as a priority 
once was in this black white paradigm but now it it's a it's a universal opportunity frankly for for a country it's not just an us or them it's it's an hour right so how do we change change that kind of dominant mindset that still is deeply ingrained in our society racism which is a, a clear part of our history that, that I think we're, we're trying to make sense of. It's there, but how do we deal with it, move around it, or push through it, right? So you both have, have kind of set this up, and, and I, I promise I'll get to the question, but kind of like, where do we go from, from here to acknowledge, but also to move forward? I'll just start by saying, I think you make a really important point in that when we think about integration now, we have a very multiracial society. So we're, it's no longer a black-white issue as we thought about it in many ways being um, around the time of Brown. So we have Latino student, growing Latino population, growing Asian population. And so we need to think about all of these different racial groups coming together, multilingual learners. And this is also something, it's not particular to one region of the country, or it's also going on in urban, suburban, rural areas. While each is unique, it's something that all of us need to be aware of. I think one thing Erica mentioned earlier was the harms of segregation for white students as well. I think if we can really try to first acknowledge the importance of public education and public education as a public good, as Mm -hmm. well as the benefits that it has for individual students, but that this is also collectively a good for all of us, Mm -hmm. that's a starting point. Um, Acknowledging the harms of segregated schools for students from all racial groups, including white students who are harmed by, white students are very isolated, one of the most racially isolated groups. And so raising awareness about the harms for white students as well, and the benefits for students from each and every racial group is important. And then I think learning from people, you know, really listening to students and families who are um, experiencing segregation. They're the experts of their own experiences. And so listening to them, Erica also mentioned earlier in this podcast, some of the student activists that are doing amazing things to bring about Mm. integration in their communities. So I think those are some of the things that would be important for us to acknowledge, as well as recognizing and lifting up examples of fabulous integrated schools and how beneficial they are for students, for the larger communities, and the great things that are happening in integrated schools across the nation. Yeah, I agree with everything that Jen said. Thinking about a couple of other things, you know, I think we do have a really complex racial demography in our country. During the civil rights era, most of the people who weren't Um, White were Black, although there was segregation that applied in different ways to Asian students, Chinese students, for example, in San Francisco, Latinx students in Texas, things like that, American Indian students, for sure. So segregation (laughs) hasn't been solely unique to Black students, um, but the ways in which it um, happened differed. And even today, we still have, you know, Black students are still concentrated in the South, Latinx students, you know, there's a huge population in Western states. And so we have different racial compositions depending on the regions. And of course, we also have different ways in which we structure school districts. And so all those things are going to matter for what solutions might work. And so that having no one clear, like, 
this is a national solution, I think right. that that's complicated. Um, and we need to acknowledge that and sort of talk about how there are these general guidelines, but how um, we're going to have to tailor it to the unique uh, situation. I also think that we haven't fully reckoned with the ways in which segregation harm communities, including desegregation harmed um, communities. So mm-hmm. Vanessa Siddle Walker has written about how black teachers knew that um, the compliance with Brown would be what she calls second class integration. So it would yep. it would be at the cost of the careers of many black educators. California, I know right now has this um, sort of reparations conversation going on. Yep. <laughs> It may be leading in that area. Um, but I do think having a shared understanding of what the history of segregation was, as well as the history of desegregation where it occurred um, across racial lines, is really important to then be able to develop consensus about how we can adopt locally crafted policies for, for integration for the future. You know, I don't think because white people are so segregated in our neighborhoods. Um, Social networks are very segregated. There's not always the understanding of how very different educational opportunities are than people, uh, you know, segregation does operate differently in that segregated Black and Latinx schools overwhelmingly are concentrated poverty schools in, in a way that doesn't always match, at least outside of rural areas for segregated white schools. And so really beginning to understand these different dimensions, as well as the different understandings of history, I think are necessary for us then to have consensus to move forward. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you're saying, Erica, that the push to around banning books, which we've talked about several times in other podcasts, um, is really problematic in terms of helping students understand, especially in hyper-segregated places, the experiences of other students. Absolutely. You know, I've, I've even been bringing in some of the banned children's books to my um, college-level classes for students to understand, A, these are the things that people are, find so objectionable, but also, mm. aren't these really great ways that they're trying to explain um, our history in age-appropriate ways to kids. You know, I bring in um, a book about Sylvia Mendez that that I, mm-hmm. I use with my children to understand how Sylvia Mendez was um, discriminated against in California and the Westminster v. Mendez case that um, at the time actually predated Brown. Uh, yep. And there's one about the segregation in Prince Edward County, Virginia, which closed the schools for five years rather than desegregate for, for Black students. And so there are all these different ways of trying to bring around this history that you know, are, are done really well. And we didn't have this when I was growing up. And so, you know, we could use that to our advantage. So we're not promoting islands of excellence. We're talking about policy, structural change, but are there one or two school sites where, where you've been like, wow, this is amazing or districts, I should say, or systems that, that, that we can point to for listeners who are like, where, where is integration happening in a pretty profound way? I think there are a number of regional efforts. They're all complicated. Uh, Hartford, yeah. Connecticut. Um, there's some mm-hmm. other inter-district plans. There have been some widespread attempts to integrate 
certainly there's some areas in New York City that are trying to do yeah. it. Yeah. It's really hard to sustain. Yeah. Joe, I'll lift up um, my local community. I'm here in Wake County, North Carolina, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we've certainly had, you know, ups and downs historically with integration here, but um, the district has, you know, a few years ago made an attempt to recommit to addressing um, some resegregation that was occurring that was somewhat derailed by the COVID-19 pandemic and just shift in focus, but made that commitment to to go along with a system of magnet schools that they're trying to use to promote integration, as well as um, different student assignment policies. So this is one place that has had ups and downs, but I think they the district here really is working towards promoting integration. And another county system that I would lift up, again, very large, is Jefferson County, Kentucky, and mm-hmm. which is where Louisville is. Mm-hmm. They were one of the districts in the Supreme Court case that had their initial plan invalidated in 2007, and they have continued to try to voluntarily integrate. You know, it's over 100,000 students, um, even in the face of legal challenges, state political challenges. They are switching some right now in part because they've, as I understand it, have struggled to have enough school bus drivers with the current bus driver shortage. And so so there there are just so many different dimensions of when you get the policy right of continuing to implement it successfully. But certainly I've admired how much they have been committed to trying to integrate over recent years. We're running out of time. If we could pretend this is live radio, which it's not. And okay, you know, we're, we're going to go to the break, but what's the one thing we need to know? Which they always rush people. But what's the one thing listeners need to understand from this conversation today? Schools and communities are very interrelated and schools can do a lot, but they can't do it all on their own. And so when we're thinking about addressing segregation, we need to focus on addressing it through both schools and communities. And I would say that we have a strong um, tradition of local control in our schools, and that's important. We need to also realize that the federal government has an equity interest in schools and to the extent to which we can use existing tools and maybe new tools to try to at least not make segregation work and ideally further integration, I think that would be to the ultimate benefit of all of us. Doctors Askew and Frankenberg have given us many examples of voluntary models of integration, but it makes me wonder, what if we could create federal policies that guaranteed a constitutional right to education with integrated schools being part of that commitment? In an upcoming episode, you'll find out that the United States is just one of a few countries in the world that doesn't declare a federal right to education. Until we can successfully integrate schools and communities, I would argue we're still fighting a lot of the same battles today of our past. We're still waiting for the goals of the Brown decision to take place. In order to do that, our policies have to change. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. 
Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director. And senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait, available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic.